In this episode, my guest and I discuss American anti-Semitism, racism, and a mass casualty event. It may not be suitable for everyone. If you were a member of the Capitol Police Force on January 6, 2021, that's what it sounded like as thousands of Trump supporters, enraged by waves of misinformation and outright lies, attacked the federal government to prevent the counting of electoral votes that would mark Democrat Joe Biden's victory and incumbent President Donald Trump's loss in the 2020 election. Yep, you heard it right. That crowd was calling for Vice President Mike Pence's death by hanging. A noose had been prepared on the Capitol grounds. Pence had refused to stop the vote count, an act which he correctly understood as illegal and unconstitutional. Informed of this turn of events by an aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, Trump's chief of staff shrugged. The president thinks he deserves it, Meadows allegedly responded about the threat to Pence's life. Trump's people had long known that the crowd was dangerous. On social media platforms like Gab, Parler, and Telegram, partisans had been calling for blood since election night. Armed men had been arrested in downtown Washington on the night of January 5th. And at the rally that preceded the insurrection, the Secret Service and other law enforcement had become aware that a large portion of the almost exclusively white crowd many of whom elected not to pass through the metal detectors that are standard at all events featuring the president, was heavily armed. Here is then-Congresswoman Liz Cheney, a Republican from Wyoming, describing the weapons carried by the mob that Donald Trump had summoned to the ellipse that day. The select committee has learned that people who willingly entered the enclosed area for President Trump's speech were screened so they could attend the rally at the ellipse. They had weapons and other items that were confiscated. Pepper spray, knives, brass knuckles, tasers, body armor, gas masks, batons, blunt weapons. And those were just from the people who chose to go through the security for the president's event on the ellipse. The select committee has learned about reports from outside the magnetometers and has obtained police radio transmissions identifying individuals with firearms including AR-15s, near the ellipse on the morning of January 6th. 
Many of us who were glued to our televisions on January 6th were shocked and horrified, in part because the conspiracy to overthrow the election had actually infected Congress. Sitting Republican politicians egged the crowd on with lies and fist pumps. But we were not surprised. It seemed that the last four years of rising right-wing populism in the United States had led to this moment. It wasn't just that the Trump presidency was authoritarian and had produced a spike in visible white supremacism. Donald Trump had also issued dark warnings throughout the 2020 campaign season about what his partisans might do in the event that the election, as he put it, was stolen. These utterances became more sinister as he fought without result to recapture, through fraudulent means, an election he had lost. But former prosecutor, legal analyst, and journalist Jeffrey Tubin saw the link between past and present in the tear gas and Trump flags surrounding the Capitol on January 6th. These extremist groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, militias, had a violent American history. Before the election, Tubin had noted a foiled plot by members of the so-called Michigan militia movement to kidnap Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer and linked that event to an earlier successful attack on the federal government. The event Tubin recalled was, at the time, just as shocking as January 6th. On April 19, 1995, Desert Storm veteran, passionate gun enthusiast, white supremacist, and anti-government crusader Timothy McVeigh drove a rider van packed with homemade explosives to the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. He lit the fuse and hurried away. The explosion ripped off the front of the building, severing a crucial pillar and causing a third of the structure to collapse in seven seconds. Glass, concrete, and steel became shrapnel, ripping into and burying the humans inside. It was the worst mass casualty event in American history. 168 people died that day, including 19 children in the daycare at the front of the building, and 680 were wounded. Jeff Tubin covered the trial, held in Denver, Colorado, and while McVeigh was not connected to any organization, his confederate, Terry Nichols, was associated with the Michigan militia. McVeigh's trial for the Oklahoma City bombing, as it came to be known, revealed a great deal about a culture of guns, violence, and conspiracy that had propelled McVeigh forward to commit such a horrible act. It reintroduced Americans to the notion that political terrorism begins at home. But as Jeff Tubin watched the events of January 6, 2021, the narrative that McVeigh's actions and trial had revealed in the mid-1990s began to look less like an isolated historical event than a vision of the future. Armed American citizens, fueled by conspiracy theories, trying to topple their own government. And Tubin began work on a book, just out from Simon & Schuster, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Join Jeffrey Tubin and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 28, Terrorism Begins at Home.
Jeffrey Tubin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Claire. Jeff, why did you get interested in Timothy McVeigh? What is it about his story that really compelled you? Well, as my father used to say, to make a long story unbearable, uh, there, there's sort of two, two reasons for that. One is I covered the McVeigh and, Nick, and Nichols trials back in 1997 in Denver. So, so this story has been in my head for a long time. And, and I remember the heartbreak and the drama and the complexity of it, just as, as someone who lived it you know, almost in real time. But the real reason I went back to it, or the the triggering event that that sent me back to it was in October of 2020, when, as I'm sure you'll remember, the FBI arrested a group of people in Michigan who were planning to kidnap Governor Whitmer. And I knew and remembered that Terry Nichols, the co-defendant in the Oklahoma City bombing case, was from Michigan, and he was affiliated with the Michigan militia as were the conspirators to kidnap Governor Whitmer. And I thought to myself, you know, I know these people. And I looked at what they stood for, and I looked at their history, and some of the individuals actually overlapped in the two stories. And then just a few weeks later, January 6th happened. And I saw, again, a lot of the same kind of people, same kind of issues raised. And I thought there was a good opportunity to look at the Oklahoma City bombing again in part because it's just an amazing story in and of itself, but also about what it says about the enduring power of right-wing extremism in the United States. So let's look at how Timothy McVeigh has been portrayed. I mean, at the time, he was said to be this lone wolf coming out of nowhere, both you and the historian Kathleen Ballou have sort of looked at the evidence and said, actually, no, he wasn't a lone wolf. There was a whole network of people. So what was the investment either in the media or on the part of the prosecutors in portraying him as a lone wolf actor? Well, there's a lot, there's a lot in that question. And I think my background as a former prosecutor really helped me to untangle the the issues uh, at the heart of your question. One of the the larger mysteries about the Oklahoma City bombing case was, was there a broader conspiracy? Were more people involved in the plot to bomb the Murrah building in Oklahoma City than Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols? And the prosecutors investigated that and the FBI investigated that in great detail, as did I many years later. And I agreed with what the government presented, that this was just as a legal matter, the two people, McVeigh and Nichols, were the only criminal participants in this conspiracy. And I understand that prosecutors want to try to keep their cases as narrow as possible, and they don't want a jury to be distracted by unnecessary political questions. But that factual question about the specific planning of the bombing, I think, distracted people, including me as a journalist at a time, from the broader question of who was Tim McVeigh and why did he do this? And, And this is why I think Kathleen Ballou's work especially her book, The War at Home, is is so important and was so influential to me in writing Homegrown, because McVeigh 
was not a lone wolf. McVeigh was not anti-government, as he sometimes described, as if he were an anarchist or a true lone wolf, like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who was active uh, at the same time in the mid-90s. McVeigh was part of a um, thriving right-wing movement in the mid-90s. Now, he was a more extreme figure, but if you look at why he did what he did, you have to know that he listened to Rush Limbaugh obsessively, that he read Soldier of Fortune, that he read The Spotlight, that he listened to a figure named Bill Cooper on shortwave radio, and most of all, that he read The Turner Diaries, uh, a dystopian novel that was popular on the right, in the right wing uh, in the 90s. One of the things I was very fortunate of in writing this book is that I got access to this incredible file of material that Stephen Jones, McVeigh's lawyer, donated to the University of Texas, the Briscoe Center there. I got access to all of his communications with his lawyers. And one thing he said really jumped out at me, which was, I knew there was an army out there, but I couldn't reach them. And, and he was right, because there was an army out there. And he went to gun shows, he tried to find people, but he didn't have the personality or the means to reach them. The internet hadn't been invented yet. McVeigh, as a political matter, was part of a big movement, but as a narrow legal matter, was not part of a broader conspiracy. Yeah, and that's a really important distinction that we can, in retrospect, see a kind of social network developing in these gun shows with the circulation of magazines, with the circulation of the Turner Diaries, so that there is a kind of social network occurring that's prior to the internet that almost gets grafted onto the chat rooms and freerepublic.com and so on, which, which emerges in the 1990s. Talk a little bit about the Turner Diaries as this ideological handbook for someone like McVeigh. You know, you've written about this yourself, these networks, and you've written about them in in your book in the Internet era. And this is the pre-Internet era. And you're right that you see a lot of the seeds of what becomes social media, but in an incredibly more complex and less efficient way. But just to answer your question about the Turner Diaries, the Turner Diaries is a uh, dystopian novel written by a man named William Pierce under a pseudonym, basically a neo-Nazi. And it's, it's the story of what happens to the United States after it is taken over by an evil conspiracy of blacks and Jews. And the first thing they do is ban private gun possession in a a law called the Cohen Act. Uh, The the Turner Diaries is not very subtle in any way. Earl Turner, the narrator and and the hero, wants to fight back against this evil federal government. And what he does is he rents a truck, fills it with explosives, and sets off a bomb adjacent to the FBI building in Washington. This in turn leads to a broader rebellion, a counter-revolution, which brings down the evil government of blacks and Jews. McVeigh, in a very intentional way, modeled his behavior on that of Earl Turner, hoping for the same thing. He set off a truck bomb next to a federal building, hoping to ignite a a counter-revolution against an evil federal government. 
I think one one area where I where people may have the wrong idea about McVeigh is they think he was motivated solely by his anger against the FBI and its raid against the Branch Davidian compound in Waco on April 19th, 1993. McVeigh certainly did time the Oklahoma City bombing for the second anniversary, and he was outraged about Waco. But just as important to him was Bill Clinton on September 13th, 1994, signing the assault weapons ban, which was just as important and just as motivating to him. And I think in terms of the later heirs of McVeigh, the obsession with gun rights is something that is very much a connecting tissue between then and now. Yeah, I want to follow up on this question of McVeigh and guns, because you make it very clear in your biography of him or the biographical material in the book that he was passionate about guns from a very early age and his family encouraged him to be involved with guns. Then at a certain point, McVeigh sees the army as the way he's going to fulfill himself in relation to weapons. But that kind of doesn't work out either. So is this passion about guns How is that linked to his broader political positions that get acted out in Oklahoma City? You know, Claire, this is something that I struggled with. You know, how do you describe political positions held by millions of people, the vast majority of whom are law abiding, as triggers to illegal action? You know, McVeigh was obsessed with Rush Limbaugh. McVeigh loved to shoot guns and practice his marksmanship. McVeigh was a successful soldier in the army. All of that were part of what made him what he is. And they are also things that a lot of people have in common who who never violate any law. But the people who later get involved in illegal activities, and I think particularly the January 6th rioters, are overrepresented in all those categories. And those are indispensable to learning about what McVeigh did. And, you know, the the private disappointments in McVeigh's life sort of are all overlaid on that fairly common political backdrop. Unhappy family with the parents, you know, parents having a rancorous divorce, you know, lack of success uh, with women coming from a part of the country uh, outside Buffalo where the economy uh, was declining. You know, a success in the army, especially in the first Gulf War, but when he returns he flunks out of special forces and fails to become a Green Beret. When you layer all of those things together, that's what makes him who he is. And fortunately, you know, there are not a lot of Tim McVeigh's. I mean, this man was a mass murderer. As bad as as troubles as this country sometimes have, we don't have an abundance of mass murderers, but he is representative of a violent political tendency that is broader than just himself. So let's talk about some of his associates, Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, who are two very different kinds of people. But these are these are people who he meets in the military. Nichols was somewhat older when he joined the military and joining the army was kind of a sign of his drift in the world, um, his lack of direction, whereas for McVeigh, it was a natural outcome of a certain kind of fierce direction toward violence. Whereas Fortier is just 
kind of a mess. He's a drug addict. He, he's a fraudster and so on. So how do Nichols and Fortier fit into this puzzle of white supremacist anti-government violence? You know, people are individuals. They're not archetypes. They, they are a stew of many influences. But one of the things that, that is very interesting about this story is that Tim McVeigh came from the exact kind of industrial declining area that went so heavily to Trump. You know, his father worked at the local GM plant for 30 years. His grandfather worked at the same GM plant for, for another 30 years. That plant was shrinking down to almost nothing by the time McVeigh came along. So he grew up in an atmosphere of straightened economic circumstances, though the family was, was not poor by any means. Terry Nichols had almost the same experience, but in the agricultural sphere. You know, he came from a struggling family farm, which in the farm crisis of the 80s, the grain embargo, bad weather rising taxes. People in Michigan were abandoning farms in great numbers when he, he was growing up. Both of them turned to scapegoats for what happened to them. And eventually, uh, the main scapegoat for them turned out to be the federal government. Terry Nichols was much more than McVeigh, a, a loser in every aspect of his life. You know, he, he had flunked out of college. He had tried to make it in Las Vegas. He had come back. He kept trying to help on the family farm. He marries an older woman with two kids. They have a kid. Uh, she's the one who essentially shoes him off to the army at age 33, a very unusual time to enlist in the army. He, he fails in the army. He gets a mail order bride from the Philippines, a, a woman who was 16 years old and under 100 pounds. I mean, someone he, he thinks he can physically control. Uh, even she betrays him. When he leaves the Philippines after meeting and getting engaged to her, she gets pregnant with another man's child whom he agrees to raise when they return to Michigan. His life is one of losing after losing. Fortier is really a simpler story. And, and it's important to emphasize that Fortier was aware of McVeigh and Nichols' plots, but he was not an active part of it. And he never was charged and never pleaded guilty. I mean, essentially, he pleaded guilty to something that was morally culpable, not reporting McVeigh and Nichols to the authorities, but he did not participate with him. He's a more familiar story, frankly. You know, he was a kid who grew up in this dusty town in Arizona and just got high all the time. That was what he spent his life doing. He worked in a hardware store. Uh, he spent a couple years in the army, married his high school sweetheart, but he was too lazy, frankly, to be a participant in much of anything. And so the three of them, you know, while distinct individuals are, you know, representative of larger themes in American life. And of all of them, in some ways, and I want to shift to the bombing itself in a minute, McVeigh is in part the most compelling, both because there's nothing he's sorry about. I mean, up until the end, until they strap him to the gurney, there's nothing that he's sorry about. But also because you keep having this sense of like someone who might have succeeded under other circumstances. He's not dumb. He has the capacity to work hard. He spends years driving around in his car, 
supporting himself in these catch-as-catch-can ways. So this sense that McVeigh in other circumstances might actually have been a productive citizen kept nagging at me. Well, you know, it's funny, Claire, this is this is something that I often thought about as a prosecutor. You know, I prosecuted mostly white collar crime and you would come across people who were incredibly intelligent and skilled and charismatic. And you think to yourself, gosh, if only they put that to productive use, we, we wouldn't be here and they, and they wouldn't be in that trouble. But I came to believe, and I think this is true of McVeigh, I think some people are evil. I think some people are just bad. Now, McVeigh, as you point out, and McVeigh is frankly the reason I wrote Homegrown, because I found McVeigh compelling. I mean, McVeigh, as you point out, was driven, intelligent, far-thinking, and politically minded in a way that was focused entirely on evil. But he he was extremely different from, from Nichols who was basically a loser and a follower and never uh, could have had the moxie or the, uh, the skill or the energy to bring off anything like the Oklahoma City bombing had McVeigh not brought him along. But McVeigh had this evil charisma and was able to push this plot forward almost single-handedly. So, so I share your interest in McVeigh, but I don't really agree with you that, oh, you know, if only he had put those to productive use. That was who he was. He was not, he was fundamentally a bad person. You know, what's interesting about McVeigh and why he doesn't end up on anybody's radar in a way is that he doesn't commit any crimes before the bombing or none that are detected. And so this is, this is part of what is unnerving about our current environment of political violence and mass shooting is how do you prepare when there are all kinds of people who are just kind of lurking under the surface, waiting for the opportunity to do something that to them is meaningful? Well, and the number of people who have access to the inspiration to commit violence is so much greater today than it was in 1995, the the year of the Oklahoma City bombing, because of the internet. McVeigh had to go to a lot of trouble to even buy a copy of the Turner Diaries, which was, after all, a paperback book. And there are not that many people who were just going to go out and search out an obscure novel to become radicalized. Now, some did, and, and that novel has had a considerable life in the extreme right-wing world since 1995, including among people who were arrested on January 6th. But it's so much easier to become radicalized and angry and, frankly, learn how to commit violence, to get the means for violence. You know, McVeigh uh, was arrested uh, 90 minutes after the bombing, first time in his life he was arrested because he was driving a car uh, north from Oklahoma City on I-35 without a license plate. He gets out of the car and Charlie Hanger, the state trooper, sees that he's got a holster with a gun in it and Hanger winds up arresting McVeigh for carrying an unlicensed weapon. If McVeigh had been stopped today in Oklahoma, there was no way he could have been arrested. All he could get was a ticket for driving without a license plate because Oklahoma, like many conservative states, has 
ended any sort of licensing requirements for gun possession. The ease with which you can get weapons today, including AR-15s, assault weapons, makes right-wing violence a lot easier. People who want to commit mass violence today don't need to go to all the trouble that McVeigh and Nichols did of buying fertilizer and buying fuel oil and renting a truck. All they have to do is go buy an AR-15. And that's what they do. Look at how many right-wing mass shooters, all radicalized over the internet, the Walmart in El Paso, the, uh, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the grocery store in Buffalo, New York, all are mass shooters because it's a lot easier to go buy an AR-15 than it is to try to build a truck bomb. That's how the world of these people has evolved. And that's why the numbers of these incidents continues to grow. And this is probably a good time to shift to talking about the victims of the Oklahoma City bombing. I thought it was one of the best pieces of book design I have ever seen, that you end a chapter with McVeigh walking away from the truck, going to the car that he's hidden a block away, and then the sentence doesn't end, and the facing page is a picture of the destruction. And it brought back for me how devastating that event was for most people in America who do not live in Oklahoma City, who didn't know anyone who was involved. But the impact of that kind of mass casualty event was enormous. Can you talk a little bit about how the prosecutors worked with the victims? What worked and what didn't work during the trial? This was a, a real challenge in writing the book because the magnitude of the horror was so great and is so great that it's really difficult to convey. You know, I've written about murder cases for, for much of my journalistic career, and, and you think about, you know, what it's like for a family to lose a loved one, a single loved one. And here you have 168 people killed, including 19 children. 15 of whom were in the daycare center in, in the Murrah building. You know, each one of those stories is a book-length tragedy. I decided to pick some representative stories, and I should add, hundreds more people injured with uh, some with, you know, her horrific life-altering injuries. And, and how do you capture that? without making an entire, you know, writing an entire book about it. I made the effort that I did. However, that wasn't the whole book. I decided this was a book fundamentally about the perpetrators, but it is true that the, the magnitude of the crime is something that was shocking and until 9-11, really unique in the life of any living American. And they had to move the trial to Denver in part because it was so horrific, but in part because they couldn't imagine there was anybody in Oklahoma City who didn't know someone or was related to someone who had been harmed. I mean, that federal building held a huge number of workers, right? There, there was an estimate that not Oklahoma City, half of the people in Oklahoma, the right. state, knew someone who was directly affected by the bombing. The number is in the, in, in the book. It's like 3 million people lived in Oklahoma at, at the time. You know, when you, when you take hundreds of people in the biggest city 
everybody had some connection to it. I mean, I think the court system was absolutely correct to move the trial to, to Denver. Obviously, everyone in Denver knew about the bombing as well, but there was not the same kind of visceral identification the way there was in, in Oklahoma City. But what was interesting politically about the Oklahoma City bombing was that it fueled the victims' rights movement, which was a really major part and remains a major part of the legal system, something that didn't, that effectively didn't exist in the United States really until feminists in the 1970s started rape crisis centers and began agitating for, for more of a voice in the, the criminal prosecution of, uh, of domestic violence that led also to mothers against drunk driving and victim impact statements and death penalty cases, all of which, you know, had had major effects in how uh, law enforcement worked in the United States. And just to take a minute to talk about the defense of McVeigh, too, because one of the things you suggest, which I thought was really important, is that McVeigh's attorney, Stephen Jones, while on the one hand, he's doing what any defense attorney does, which is to create an alternative theory of the case that does not allow the jury to say, you know, this person has done this beyond a reasonable doubt. And and defense attorneys do that all the time. But Jones really sort of veers into the territory of conspiracism. And that becomes, you suggest, a sort of signal moment in the 1990s where conspiracism will become part of the fabric of the culture. Now, Stephen Jones is a major figure in the book, and I have a certain degree of empathy for Stephen because, look, he had a very hard job. Timothy McVeigh, A, was guilty, B, was proudly guilty, and C, still wanted to be defended somehow. That is not an easy situation for any defense lawyer. I mean, what do you do with a client who proudly admits his authorship of this horrible crime, but still somehow wants a defense? Stephen, I think, does have a taste uh, for conspiracies, like a lot of people, and to this day believes that there was some sort of broader conspiracy that McVeigh was lying to him about. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's true. But the sort of floundering around and the trying to appeal to different political constituencies with these conspiracy theories is, I think, an enduring legacy of the case. And let me just, just give you two, two examples. You know, especially after 9-11, there was an effort on the part of a lot of conservatives to define all terrorism as Islamic radicalism. If it wasn't Islamic radicalism, it wasn't terrorism. And there have been persistent efforts, including some in Congress, to tie McVeigh and Nichols to Islamic radicalism. A congressman named Dana Rohrabacher did a whole investigation attempting to prove this, in my view, completely frivolous and silly and wrong. But this idea that the right tried to distance themselves from McVeigh by saying he was affiliated with Al-Qaeda is, is revealing. On the left, there has also been a persistent effort to say that McVeigh and Nichols were part of a broader right-wing conspiracy, that there were people perhaps in a compound in Elohim City, which is a town uh, near the Arkansas border in Oklahoma City, that there was this broader right-wing violent conspiracy. 
I don't think that's true either. I mean, I think McVeigh had ideological soulmates in those places, but they were not participants in this conspiracy. But, but I think those are examples of how people have tried to use McVeigh for their own political ends over the years. Yeah. I think that's right. There's so much we could be talking about here, Jeff, but we're coming to the close of our time. So I want to throw in my last question, which is what I ask everybody. Why should our listeners read your book now? Well, I think just to answer straightforwardly, two reasons. One is it's an absolutely incredible story of how this bombing came to be. There is a true crime element that I found compelling, and I think readers are finding compelling, about just the story of who these people are and how they committed this heinous act. The second reason is it tells you a lot about where we are politically right now, that the right-wing extremism that McVeigh embodied in the 90s thrives in this country. And the most vivid demonstration of that is what happened in January 6th. And throughout the book, you know, I try to show the links between McVeigh and the current day. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Mm -hmm.